Well, I am eager to be back uh, preaching again. Uh, I know it's always great to take a breather and take a, some time for reflection. I've had time to spend with my family, and we've got, even got a vacation in and all this, this craziness. But I'm also eager to be back in, um, and I'm eager to, to get going with our series again as we explore the Gospel of Luke, or explore who Jesus is in the Gospel of Luke. And I want to tell you that today and the next two, these three really hold together, if you want to think about it as a series within a series, or perhaps a, a mini-series, if you would, because we're going to look at the climax, the fulfillment, the, the reason that Luke is writing his gospel comes to this point. And you could really consider all of the gospels are basically considered um, their accounts of the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus with long intros, is what they are. And we're going to come in these next three series, and I'm going to do today, Riley's going to do next week, and then the last week I'll finish up, and we're going to look at the crucifixion today. Through each of these, though, what I want us to experience is, and I want you to understand, is that the mission and the death and the resurrection of Jesus is intellectually sound and... It's existentially satisfying. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean, you can look at this rationally. It can withstand the greatest scrutiny that you want to throw at it. Did this actually happen? Is there truth here? Is this valid? You can explore all of that, and it will, with, it will stand up to all of your examination. And existentially, or maybe a better way to say it is experientially, as you come to understand who Jesus is, the role that he plays in your life, and the way that his, this truth has a changing impact, it is the most satisfying answer for our deepest questions, our deepest struggles, and our brokenness that exists in our, in our hearts and in our lives. And so I want you to be paying real close attention, and I want you to be a part of this, and I want you to be thinking about who else needs to hear this. Who's somebody in your circle of influence, perhaps that you love and you care about and matters to you, that you say, I need to get them these messages. I, I, and just share with them, shoot the link to them, send them the email, whatever it is where you say, hey, I'm praying for you, I'm thinking about you, and I think this is something that would bless you. And so that's how we're going to lay out these last three as we come to the conclusion. Now, it's not the last time we're going to be preaching on Jesus this year, because remember, we committed the whole year, but it will wrap up our time in Luke. And so if you have your Luke journals, or if you've got your Bibles, let's open these up. Luke chapter 23 is where we're going to be today. And if you're in, a, if you're in one of our journals, let me see if I can get to the right page. Mine flipped closed. Uh, 160 four in the Luke journals, but Luke chapter 23, we're going to be, begin in verse 26. To get us started, though, I'm going to try to walk us through this powerful account of the death of Jesus. But as we go through, I want us to wrestle with three questions, and here they are. It's these three questions right here. Question one, did Jesus really die? Do we have an actual historical event, and can we trust that Jesus really died on the cross. Second question, why did Jesus have to die? What, why can't God just forgive? Why can't God just press the forgiveness button and 
why did Jesus have to endure what we're about to read in the Gospel of Luke? You read it in all the Gospels, but particularly in the Gospel of Luke, as we understand. And then the biggest question, what difference does it make? And I hope that by the time we're done today, that these three questions are at least answered in some way, or you've got some stuff that I can at least give you to think about before you, uh, before you walk away today. So, if you will, I'll start reading together, and I'm going to start in verse 26. And as they, these would be the Roman guards, the centurions, the death squad, as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid him on the cross to carry it behind Jesus. Now, I'm going to just take a quick detour real quick. This, this is bonus material here. What you have in this, this scenario is Jesus is being led to the cross. You've got the Roman guards that are leading him, and oftentimes the condemned was required to carry their own cross. Now, we're not exactly sure what that looked like, but most likely it was the heavy cross beam that was carried. And it's believed that the, the vertical part was just left in the ground at the site of execution, at the place of the skull, at Golgotha, and this place that just kind of reeked of death, and it was not a place that you would want uh, to go have a picnic at, but they intentionally put it to where everybody that came into the city would see, here's what Rome does. And on the way out, Jesus has already endured such a beating, such a turmoil, he's already dehydrated, he's already suffering from the bruises, and remember, he was flogged. Or he was whipped. Okay. And what that is, is that's not just simply a piece of leather going across his back. That was designed, the leather was designed in such a way with bones and fragments to flay open his flesh. There is often, there's accounts that oftentimes a person did not survive the flogging to make it to the crucifixion. The goal was to bring him almost to the point of death. And so this is what Jesus endured, and so now he's being asked to carry this heavy crossbeam, and somewhere along the way he must have stumbled. Or it seemed like he wasn't going to make it. That the physical turmoil on him was too much. And so what happens is these soldiers go and grab, and what's incredible, and here's the detail that we have, we have the name, and he's Simon, and he's from Cyrene, and that's important. Because Cyrene is in northern Africa. And they go and grab a man that was clearly not from around there. He would have been very dark-skinned. And they go and they reach him out of the crowd. And maybe it's because he's dark-skinned. I don't know why, but they single him out. They drag him in the midst. And suddenly Simon is in the midst of a historical event. And we know that because his children became believers later that Simon, this moment affected Simon greatly. And one thing that I know Luke is trying to tell us that's so important, this is where the side note comes in, is that from the beginning, the cross was all for all. The cross was diversified from the beginning. And so here's a foreigner. Here's a dark-skinned foreigner from Africa, and he's right in the middle of the story in some ways, a very heroic kind of way, helping Jesus make it 
to the place of his own execution and serving in that way. And so Luke has this all throughout, but he's saying that the gospel message, the cross, is an experience for all. So this is one of the reasons that I love so much what Western Hills is doing in partnership with our brothers and sisters from the Avenue G Church. Because together, when we come together, and every time we have a conversation, every time we worship together, every time I hear about a house church that has gotten together with a small group from Avenue G, every time our singing groups come together, every time our youth group comes together, once again we're proclaiming exactly what Simon did on that day, that the gospel and the crucifixion and the cross of Jesus is for all. And I pray that that just continues to grow and we continue to become as diversified as Jesus' vision for us is to be. Well, back to our first question then. Did it really happen? Look with me at chapter 30, um, 32. I'm sorry, verse 32. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And so our first question is, did Jesus really die? And what Luke does is he does this thing, and you'll see this in all the Gospels, where he gives us almost a one-word description of what's going on. There they crucified him. And for those of us in the modern world, we really want our details, don't we? I, I need to know more. I need to know more. And the reason the Gospel writers could sum it up with just a word is because everybody that read their Gospel knew exactly what crucifixion was. Because they had not seen a few of them. They had seen dozens and perhaps hundreds of them. Rome was very efficient at crucifixion. They had it down to a science. And they would line the roads with the crucified. Because every crucified criminal was a billboard that said, Do not mess with the power of Rome. Do not question our authority. Do not challenge us. This is what happens to would-be revolters, would-be messiahs, would-be kings, would-be overthrowers. This is what happens when you take on the power of Rome. And so the question for us then is, with just this, he was crucified. And I've been and seen the place that actually looks like a skull. The side of this hill is one of the places where they think that the crucifixion may occur, and it really does resemble a skull when you look at it. And it was a place of death, and there he's crucified, and it says between two thieves. So the first question we wrestle with is, did, he, did this really happen? Do we have an actual historical account? Now, there's all kinds of things that I could explore right now, and I'm going to save some of them for another sermon, but let me tackle one of them. One of the questions is, did Jesus really die? It comes from, can we trust the documents that we have? Can we trust Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Are they trustworthy sources? And I'm going to tell you, they stand up to greater scrutiny than most of our ancient literature. We have more copies of these. Now, some people, going to, some people say, well, but we found discrepancy in the copies. And there are a few discrepancies. I'm going to tell you that most of it, as far as what it means, does it change the meaning? 
Most of it doesn't amount to anything. And But what I'm trying to get across, though, is that the fact that we have a few discrepancies of documents written from wide sources over many um, copies over many, many generations, the fact that they are so close that they are almost identical is really the power of the miracle. Same thing is, did the disciples just create this? Did they realize that Jesus wasn't who they thought he was and they needed to come up with a new story? They needed to change the story. Well, if Jesus isn't who he says he was, you would not have written a story this way. We, this is an incredible shame culture. See, we, we talk about shame now, but we try to shame each other all over the place. You would not have accepted any type of shame. You would have avoided it at all costs. And for the Roman, for the Gentile, or for the Jewish person, crucifixion comes, has no equal, I mean, when it comes to shame. It was the worst of the worst. It was the greatest place that you could shame somebody. So you would not write a story that has your Messiah going to crucifixion. Second thing is, you wouldn't write a story, if, if you're making it up, you especially wouldn't write a story where he goes to crucifixion, but right before it happens, he's begging God for another way. Remember the Garden of Gethsemane? He said, if there's any other way, let's take that one. You would not write that into the story if you were making the story up. The other thing you wouldn't do is you wouldn't have the disciples portrayed the way they're portrayed. The disciples are legitimately transparent with their own failings and how they did not understand the very thing that Jesus was telling to them. And so all throughout the Gospels as you read them, Luke included, they keep missing it and they keep missing it and they keep missing it. And they fail and they stumble. Remember Peter. Peter even denies knowing Jesus and that makes it into the book. Why? Not because they're trying to make up a story to bolster themselves. Because it actually happened. The last bit of evidence I just threw out there is you need to understand that when it comes to the resurrection, all of the first witnesses were women. In a culture where a woman's testimony was not even valid in a court of law because they were not considered reliable witnesses, there had to be great pressure on the gospel writers to avoid that. But because that's how it happened, they didn't feel that they could change the story. And so what we're getting is an accurate account because they would not have written it that way. There is no motive for that way. So did Jesus really die? Yes, what we have is a historical event, and it is the historical event, crucifixion and resurrection, on which our entire timeline of history hinges. And we're going to be unpacking more of that as we go. Verse 34. And if you don't have these words already highlighted in your Bible, circled, um, I want you to do that now. Verse 34. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. In the very act of his crucifixion, as nails are being driven into his hands, as nails are being driven into his feet, as the Roman soldiers 
below are dividing up his garments. Why are they dividing his garments? Because most of the time you're crucified naked. So they have removed his clothing. Why? Because it's all about shame. It's, it's very little about punishment. It's about shame and sending a message. This is what happens when you mess with Rome. And in the middle of that, this innocent one says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And so this brings us to our second question. Why did Jesus have to die? Why did he have to die? What, if, if God can forgive, why can't he just, as I said earlier, press the forgive button? Everybody remember the staples button? Is it the easy button? You know, that was easy. Why can't Jessica go, boom, well, that was easy. Why did we have to go through this? Because if you just read this account, it almost looks like divine child abuse, doesn't it? I mean, this is some hard stuff. Uh, several years ago, the, the Passion of the Christ movie came out, the one that Mel Gibson was the producer of. And it was so unique because it played in theaters. And so it suddenly had this audience that most Christian movies or Bible-based movies don't have. And there was an overwhelming response from, from non-Christian, non-believers that went to see that movie. And the response was not necessarily, oh, wow, now I believe. You know what the response was as they walked, as they interviewed these people, as they walked out of the movie that were non-believers and didn't know the story? What was that? was their question. What did we just see? That doesn't make any sense. And I think sometimes as believers, we be, we're so familiar with the story that we don't stop and think, why did Jesus have to die? And here's what I'm going to say. I appreciate a guy named Tim Keller so much for helping me gain some perspective on this. And what you need to understand is that, that all forgiveness comes with suffering. And so here's a quote. All forgiveness involves voluntary suffering. Now, think about this in your own experience. If you've been betrayed and wronged at a very deep level, if you've been cut to the core by somebody, somebody has injured you, somebody has harmed you, they've betrayed you, they've lied to you, they've stolen from you, something valuable and precious, whatever that is, there's only one way for justice to come, and somebody has to suffer, right? Now, most of us, in our very human selves, what do we want? We want them to suffer. There, there has to be suffering. And so, we relish the thought of them getting what they deserve. I even heard you at home. Thank you. Getting, what you, getting them what they deserve. Forgiveness, and this is powerful, understand. Forgiveness is when you release them from having to get what they deserve and you're willing to take the suffering yourself. Meaning, you now live with the fact that the scales are not going to be balanced. And that comes at a cost, doesn't it? There's an anxiety there. There's a, there's a struggle there. That you're willing to walk through that fire until you come to a place where you're actually at peace with it. But there is no such thing as an easy forgiveness, is there? And you think about the ones that you've forgiven, the people that have hurt you greatly, and you, had, you forgave them, you know that that forgiveness came at a cost. Why would it be any different for God? 
if we are made in God's image and His thumbprint is on us, then why would it be different? All forgiveness involves voluntary suffering. And so what we have is all the betrayal, all the things that I've stolen, all the ways that I've rebelled, all the ways that I've hurt, all those that I've hurt, Jesus takes that on voluntarily onto Himself. There is a price that is being paid. And the innocent one is willing to take it on to himself and says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now, I, I hope that brings you some kind of encouragement today. I, I, I hope that lands, and that may be the part of the message where you just need to dwell for a while. You just need to live there in that moment with that reality that Jesus volunteered took this on for you, for me. Verse 35. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him. Now, I'm going to read a passage here, and I want you to pay attention to the titles that they give Jesus. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, saying, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. You see all those titles? Christ of God, the chosen one. He's also Messiah. This is the king of the Jews. There's a board over his head that says, This is the charge against him. This is the king of the Jews. Look at all those titles that they've given him. The irony is, they are mocking him in this moment, and every time they mock him, what are they saying? An absolute truth. In their jest, in their trying to humiliate him, in their scorn for him, they are proclaiming truth again and again and again. Christ of God, the Chosen One, King of the Jews. Can Can you imagine how Jesus on the cross took being mocked? And took that kind of scorn? How, how do you feel when somebody makes fun of you? You ever have your kids mock you in some way? You ever had a teammate or somebody mock you? We, we don't do well with a, just a little bit of mocking, do we? It doesn't take much mocking to set most of us off. And here is Jesus as they throw these titles at him like they're being some kind of sarcastic, you know, yeah, you say you were this. And yet he absolutely is. And he's willing to take all of that, all of that suffering on. So let's get to our final question. Verse 39. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him. Another criminal is joining in, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, Do not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation. And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. The first criminal I, I think the first criminal probably has some kind of hope that maybe Jesus is the Christ. Can you save us? Say, if you're, now's the time. There's probably a part of him that's really hoping this is true. 
And the second one, asked him, don't you fear God? Because there's something that he sees in Jesus that has him tied to God. And he says, we deserve what we're getting. Now there's a confession for you. We, we put ourselves here. We earned this. He hasn't. And so he turns and he has this prayer. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And, and I, what I wish I could hear is the tone of Jesus in this moment. Because I don't know if it was so noisy or they're so far apart that Jesus had to yell or he's still fighting to even speak. But, I, but to hear his voice when he says, Truly I say today, you will be with me in paradise. Now, paradise, anytime you see a word, it's always great to answer, ask the question, where did that word first appear? Where in the scriptures that word first appear? And the word that, where this word first appeared, this word for paradise, is all the way back to the beginning of your Bible in Genesis. In Genesis 1 and 2 and 3, the Garden of Eden is described as a paradise. And in that paradise, Adam and Eve, steal something that's not theirs. They take fruit from the tree they're not supposed to. They're thieves. And that thievery causes a break between the relationship of God and us. And now here on a tree, Jesus is hanging between two thieves. And one thief cries out, and essentially his question is, can this relationship be restored? And he says, today you'll be with me in paradise. Today, the gap gets closed again. The gap that has existed for all of known history gets reconciled again, brought back together. So our last question is this, does it matter? Does the death of Jesus matter? What difference does it make? I'm going to tell you, it makes all the difference in the world. Again, I'm, I'm so grateful for Tim Keller for giving me this illustration. He describes it that when we're looking for security, when we're looking for hope, or we're looking for something that we can grasp onto, it just boils down to this. We're all on a big rock that's just spinning through space. And at some point, uh, while you're on this rock, this trap door beneath it, you, known as death, is going to open up. And at that moment, it seems like there's only two ways you're going to fall. One, you're going to fall into nothingness. Nothing's been real, nothing's been true about it. And you're just going to cease to exist. Or, you're going to fall into the loving arms of God. So here's the question. Does it make a difference? It's all about where do you want to place your confidence when this thing called death finds you. And what's so powerful to me is because of the death of Jesus, we don't have to view death in the same way anymore. We need not fear it like we used to. Now, we still grieve with it, we, 
we still hurt when we lose a loved one. I'm not suggesting we don't. But let's understand that as believers in Jesus, because we know what happens when we fall through the trap door, that we need not fear it in the same way, because in the death of Christ, we've experienced the death of death. And it was defeated in that moment. And so Luke ends it this way. Verse 44. It was now about the sixth hour. And there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. While the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus calling out with a loud voice. Here's another thing that I want you to circle. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said, said this, he breathed his last. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. What Jesus is saying there is he's quoting a psalm. It's the same psalm that you heard read at the very beginning by Jonathan. It's the Psalm 31. And it, <clears throat> I want you to write that down. I want you to spend some time in Psalm 31, at least 31 verses 1 through 5. Because you will see in this psalm, Jesus is going back and quoting Scripture at this very moment. And what's very powerful about this is, this is a psalm that was taught to Jewish children as a bedtime prayer. This was part of a bedtime ritual. Anybody ever had bedtime rituals growing up? Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. You know, there's, there's that type of imagery going on here that what Jesus is doing as he hangs in this very moment is he's reaching all the way back to a prayer that was taught to him as a little boy. And in that moment, he's calling on this, this psalm that says, Into your hands I commit my spirit. And I'm going to suggest that what Jesus is doing there is he is trusting God the same way that you and I are invited to trust God. That, and here's my belief. I believe that Jesus did not have the power to raise himself. That he wasn't holding a resurrection card in his back pocket. He didn't have some superpower. That when he faced his death, one of the reasons that it was so agonizing for him is because at that point he was putting all of his trust, all of his confidence that God was going to do the resurrection. Into your hands I commit my Spirit. I am fully trusting, which means that you and I face our death the same way that Jesus does, with nothing more and nothing less than a total confidence in what God's going to do. And he prays this prayer, this prayer that calls back all the way to his child, says, into your hands I commit my spirit, and I'm going to suggest that that needs to be a prayer that we need to be praying every single day. Every time that you face a moment where you're going to need to die to yourself and fully trust that God's going to be the one that raises you up. Every time you walk into a difficult situation that you know is going to be an opportunity or, or a, a challenge for you to die to yourself, that you're praying this prayer. When you're having a difficult conversation with somebody that you love, Lord, into your hands I commit my spirit. When you're going to make a major financial decision and you're going to give sacrificially somehow, Lord, into your hands I commit my spirit. When you perhaps are going to have to confront a friend or a loved one to try to bring them back and restore them again, Lord, into your hands I commit my spirit. When you're going to have to forgive, 
for that great betrayal that you've endured. Lord, into your hands I commit my spirit. Because here's the truth. Only when we're willing to die to ourselves do we get to experience resurrection. Resurrection occurs when you die to yourself. Jesus was not going to experience the resurrection until this very moment. Into your hands I commit my spirit. And if we could be a people that every day we're looking for ways to die to ourselves and we commit ourselves, our marriages, our parenting, our kids, our jobs, careers, our wants, all to God, we commit all that into His hands, He will be the one that will raise us up. Now, I'm going to challenge you. If you pray that prayer, that's a prayer God's going to honor. I don't know how all the ways He's going to honor it, but you will not regret that. And with that, Jesus breathes His last. He's fulfilled His mission. And He dies. And right before we go, I'll show you one more thing. Verse 47, Now when the centurion, one of these hardened Roman soldiers that had seen executions again and again and again, and every time he'd seen one, the man on the cross claimed to be innocent. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. Certainly this man was innocent. Certainly there's something different about him. So here's the invitation. What do you say about the man on the cross? What do you say about the one that claims to be the Son of God? The one that's mocked as the King of the Jews? What do you say? What, what do you do with that now? Here's what the Roman centurion did with it. But now it's up to you. Now it's in your hands. What will you do with this opportunity that you have? And I'm going to pray that your response is like the thief on the cross. Because we've all stolen something from God. And that we're simply trusting in Him. Confident in that. That He will raise us up. Because that's exactly what Jesus did. Let me pray for us. Father, I don't know where everybody is with this story, but as I wrestle with it again, I'm reminded in so many ways that we've got to trust you. We've got to trust and lean into you. And Father, I, I know some wrestle with whether or not this actually happened. Father, I pray that you would bring conviction that it did. Father, I know that some wrestle, why did it have to happen? I hope you'll give us an understanding of what it means to be forgiven in that. Father, the real question is, does it matter at all? And I pray that each one of us would just be nothing more and nothing less than a thief, condemned, knowing that that's why you're on that cross. 
in our place, forgiving. So, Father, I pray for all those that may be wrestling with this as a reality, that this week you would be breaking through whatever barriers and defenses and obstacles they put up, and you'd be reaching in and convicting hearts. And I ask all this in the name of the one that went to the cross, in the name of the one that went to the grave, in the name of the one that lives again. It's all this name of Jesus I pray. Amen.